0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him?
1: Episode 90, Listener Questions 1. A lot of people want to talk to me about the Trinity and related issues. A lot of people email me, they have comments on the blog. Sometimes I interact with people on Facebook or Twitter a little bit. The fact is I don't always have time to answer questions, especially quickly. But one thing I've started to do is to save up listener questions for occasional podcast episodes which are devoted to answering questions. So this is the first such podcast. I don't know how often I'll do this. I'll do it periodically. It might be every month, every couple of months, something like that. Of course, some questions and other feedback I might answer at the start or middle or end of some other podcast. Especially if the feedback relates to the previous episode, I'm likely to talk about it in the next episode. So, anytime you want to, upload me some audio feedback or send me a message to my email. I can't include everything, but I will include some. And before we get started, I'd like to thank Jan from the Slovak Republic for his donation through PayPal. Jan says it is, quote, to express my gratitude for your efforts that helped me a lot to clarify my thinking about God. Thank you, Dr. Tuggy, end quote. Thank you, Jan, for listening, and thank you for the donation. So the first two questions come from a listener named John. Here's the first one.
2: Hi, Dale. Thanks for your latest posts. It's really interesting. I look forward very much to hearing more from you on Clark. In the meantime... I'd like to hassle you a little more on the 325-381 to development that you see from homusios to tripersonal god. I even wonder if you feel you are getting closer to identifying the semantic stepping stones as others have attempted, but rarely in any kind of satisfying way, I feel those semantic stepping stones that take us all the way through from New Testament to Chalcedon. Semantic
1: stepping stones. Okay, I think what John is after is a coherent story about how we get from the New Testament style of talking about God and Jesus, all the way to the fully developed Trinitarian language. Now, it's often noted that the word Trinity does not occur in the Bible. And this is obviously correct, but also obvious is that nothing very interesting follows from this. For all we've said, the Bible may teach that there is a tri-personal God consisting of three equally divine persons who share anousia. The Bible may just imply that, but not explicitly say that. And if that were the situation, then you would find that the word Trinity wasn't in the Bible, and yet all of the content of the Trinity doctrine is in the Bible although it's expressed implicitly, at least some of it. That's as far as evangelical apologists will take you with the issue. But the fact is, there's something a lot more disturbing than that the word Trinity doesn't occur in the Bible. What's more surprising, and this really did profoundly surprise me when I found out about this around, maybe it was somewhere around the year 2000, what's really surprising is that there isn't any term in the Bible which the writers mean to refer to a tri-personal God. To keep things simple, let's stick with the New Testament. The word that you see translated as God is ha-theos, that's literally the God, that's what we translate as God with a capital G, and countless people of many different theological stripes and I'm talking here about scholars who work really closely with the text and really get themselves into the vocabulary, the assumptions, and the mindset of these first century writers, many such scholars have observed that God, HaTheos, is nearly always in the New Testament, the Father. And then there's a handful of times, some think as many as about eight, I would say just maybe a couple, some say four or five, some people rate some of these uh, passages as doubtful or probable or certain. Anyway, everybody agrees that less than 10 times in the Bible, Jesus is referred to using the word theos. Not necessarily ha-theos, but at least theos, which can be translated as a god or as god. It depends on the context, and the grammar doesn't always settle it. So, the overwhelming usage of more than a thousand uses in the New Testament is that God refers to the Father, and then here and there, such as in Hebrews 1, verse 8, Jesus is referred to by the title God. Right? So, never does God mean the tripersonal God. That's surprising. That's really surprising. You would think that if the New Testament writers were teaching a tripersonal God, they would have mentioned a tripersonal God, in any way, in some way. No. Nope. When they say God, it's almost always the Father. Maybe sometimes it's Jesus, or arguably once or twice the Holy Spirit. Nowhere is to be found anywhere in the New Testament of use of the word God where this refers to any kind of tripersonal or multi-personal being. Now, around the time of augustine you see exactly that usage you see augustine calling the father and son and spirit god and saying that the one true god is the father son and spirit now god refers to the three of them together and augustine like other people in his era strongly emphasizes that they are equally divine and share the divine usia the divine essence or nature And he thinks it follows that they are one and the same God. Now John specifically pinpoints the era between 325, that's when the Nicene Creed was written, and 381, when the creed from the council at Constantinople was written. And in my research, it was sometime during this span of years that people started using the word God to refer to the Trinity, all three of them together. Now, how did this happen? Well, I think there are some stages that are gone through, and I'm more confident about the earlier part than about the latter part. And so, I haven't settled in my own mind quite the shifts and changes that went on in that era, but I'll tell you the earlier changes. So, in the New Testament, they almost never call Jesus God. The New Testament does recognize in a couple of places that other beings than Yahweh can be called God. Satan is called the god of this world, and Jesus himself in John 10 makes the point that people to whom the word of God came might be referred to as gods or addressed as gods. Of course, he then goes on to correct the listeners. He's not saying that he's God, he's saying that he's the son of God, and that's not blasphemy. That's the upshot of his argument in John 10. So they, they can and do apply God terms to Jesus, but there's a reticence to do so which many people have noted. Now, they're less reticent to refer to Jesus as the Lord. The Lord is a more flexible word, it can just mean master or sir, and it can also be the substitute for God's name in Greek translations of the Hebrew Bible. I've argued that in the New Testament there's a kind of middle usage, it's neither merely sir nor is it the divine name, but it's a middle usage based on Psalm 110.1 where Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So Jesus, when he's been raised and exalted to God's right hand, is now the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord in Paul usually refers to Jesus, although sometimes when he's quoting the Old Testament or in a few other places it refers to the Father. This ambiguity of the term the Lord wasn't confusing to them, really. There's no sign of that confusion anyway. Of all people, Paul himself does not confuse Jesus and God. If you look at the beginning of every Pauline letter, he sends greetings from God and also from Jesus. And they play distinct roles, and they're distinct beings for Paul. There's the one true God, and then we also serve the one Lord. We worship the one Lord, he says in Philippians 2, but the honor goes ultimately to the one God, to the one who sent him, empowered him, raised him, and exalted him. So when the New Testament refers to Jesus as Lord, it's not at all intended as a hint that really this is God himself. It's clear throughout that he's a different being than God himself, even though he's called the Lord Jesus, and even though once in a while he's referred to as God. So here's a first step, in the second century, so in the 100s, they much more readily refer to Jesus as God, or even our God, and this is while at the same time they're still recognizing the Father as the one true God. There are just two different ones who are called God, they just recognize an ambiguity in that name. People like Tertullian are very explicit about this, Origen very explicit about this. People objected to them. That is, the Logos theologians starting in the end of the 100s and going on into the 200s. People objected, hey, you guys are preaching to gods. But no, they made clear there's, there's one true God. That's the Father. That's the Creator. That's the source of all else. And then there's the one through whom God created. This one we also address as God. But he's not the one true God. It's another one who's called God. And they also developed the idea that any god... Or being named Yahweh, who is seen in the Old Testament, it must have been Jesus because it says that God, the one true God, is unseen. So any God that was seen must have been Jesus. So that must have been Jesus speaking to Moses, being seen by Moses, and so on. Well, that's another can of worms, but my point here is they're still distinguishing between Yahweh and Jesus, even while they're calling both of them God, even while they're saying that the Yahweh that spoke to Moses. Was Jesus. So you see this usage, for instance, in Novation, Hippolytus, the Logos theologians, and so on. When challenged about whether they're really monotheists, they don't say, yeah, but the Father and Son are one God, they're two persons in one God. They don't say that. When challenged about their monotheism, they emphasize the uniqueness of the Father. And their point is that the one true God is the Father. And yes, there are lesser beings who are called God you basically never see the Holy Spirit being called God early on, but you start to see this later. By the time of Origen, you have the Holy Spirit as a third divine being, although the second and third divine beings are not divine in the same sense as the first divine being. They derive a lesser sort of divinity from him, Origen thinks, eternally. Another big change in terminology you see is the introduction of the word Trinity, Trinitas in Latin or Trias in Greek. You see that come in around the year 180. but the Trinity in this early usage is never a tripersonal God. The Trinity is a group of which God is the founding member. Now a lot of people see Trinitarian theology as stemming from Nicaea in 325. I don't see it that way myself. I think it's another step. I mean, look at the way it starts. It starts off just like the traditional Unitarian confessions. We believe in one God, who? The Father, all-powerful, maker of all things, both seen and unseen. So, the one God is still assumed to be identical to the Father in the Nicene Creed of 325. And we also believe, it says, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten from the Father, Okay nothing controversial or new there, really. Here's the controversial part. That is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through whom all things came to be. And then it talks about becoming incarnate, becoming human, and then at the end it tacks on and in the Holy Spirit. So whatever that means. You can listen to the podcast episode on this, which is episode 30. The point of this statement was to kick the Arians out, so they anathematize people who say there was a time when the Son was not, or that he is another substance, or another hypostasis, which they change that later. The point of this is to emphasize the qualitative likeness of the Son of God to God the Father. Now, what's really striking and new is this claim that Jesus is begotten from the substance of the Father. What does that mean? That makes it sound like Jesus is made of some of the same stuff as the Father. People argued about this for a long time and really still do. God from God. Okay, that's not that controversial because, as we've seen, it had now long been traditional to refer to Jesus as God. Light from light. Not controversial. True God from true God. Oh, wait a second there. Now this is something new. True God from true God. In John 17, Jesus says the Father is the only true God. Now you've got one true God who is from another true God. It looks like more than one God. Well, at least it's more than one being who is called God. At this point, that's a central part of the Catholic tradition. It says they're consubstantial, homoousios, but it's not clear here that this means that they are the same God. Remember, it's already told us who the one God is. It's the Father Almighty. So everywhere in the Creed of Nicaea from the year 325, every time the term God is used, it refers either to the Father or to the Son. At no time does the word God refer to the Holy Spirit, and at no time in this creed does the word God refer to the Trinity. Of course, what happened after the Creed of 325 was decades of vicious fighting between the so-called Arians and Athanasius. And, well, there was more than two sides. It was really, the history is very complicated, and it turns around a couple of times. All sides are trying to get the empire to endorse them and to crush their opponents. By the time 380 rolls around, people are pretty, well, sick of the fighting. And really, the one side, the What's now called the pro Nicene theologians have basically prevailed, whether from strength of argument or just sheer resolve. The Council at Constantinople spun itself as just reaffirming the Creed of Nicaea. It's not quite the same creed, it's a little different. A lot of the language is the same one God, the Father, all powerful, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Still, in this creed, you don't see the word God referring to the Trinity. But it inches right up to that mark, the way I look at it. At the end it says, And in the Spirit, the Holy, the Lordly, and life-giving One, proceeding forth from the Father, co-worshipped and co-glorified with the Father and Son, the One who spoke through the prophets. And then it talks about the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. There's a confession here of... God the Father and then the son of God who is called true god from true god and also the holy spirit it doesn't call him god but it seems to imply that he has a similar or the same status as the son because he proceeds forth from the father whatever that means and because he's co-worshipped and co-glorified with father and son and then in a letter that the bishops sent this isn't the official creed but it's a document that has Kind of gone along with it. The Council of 381 says that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a single Godhead and power and substance, a dignity deserving the same honor and a co eternal sovereignty in three most perfect hypostases or three perfect persons. End quote. And then later it mentions the uncreated and consubstantial and co eternal Trinity. Now, does the word Trinity there refer to a tripersonal God, or does it just refer to? The collection of these, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. I think the statement is ambiguous. I could be persuaded either way based on more looking into the context of the times and what usage had prevailed. But I do know that at that time there were some people who were using the Trinity as a name for the one God. In other words, they didn't just have God and also God's divine Son and His Spirit. And that's the Trinity where God is the first member of it, where the one true God is the founder, so to speak. Rather, there were people who thought that the one true God was the Trinity. And so, it may be that's what they mean there. Now, there's one other aspect of this that I haven't looked enough into. And that is that during this time, between 325 and 381, theologians became increasingly focused on the idea of the divine nature. It's often translated nowadays as Godhead in English. And also, a lot of them explicitly endorse the old Platonic doctrine of divine simplicity. That there are no parts of God, no internal distinctions within God of any kind. That God just is His properties, and His properties are one another. He doesn't even have different features or different properties or intrinsic uh, aspects. Now, a nature in philosophy is usually talked about as something that a thing has. So people talk about humanity as your human nature. Your nature or your essence is something like a set of essential properties. And so if God has a nature, then his nature would be something he has. It would be his essential properties, things like omnipotence, omniscience, omnibenevolence, omnipresence, and so on. But if you go all the way with divine simplicity, then God doesn't have different properties, and you really can't make any distinction in reality between God and God's essence, or God and his nature. God just is his nature. If you're talking about the divine nature, you're talking about God. So I think there's also a usage in the 4th century of using God, meaning the Godhead, the divine nature. And this may be the middle step that I'm looking for, but like I said, I haven't come up with a story that really makes sense to me about how this transition goes here's one way it might go i'm out on a speculative limb here if you fully understand and endorse divine simplicity there's no difference between god and god's nature god just is godhead they're one and the same and also any other property he has he is so if he has the property of being a father well the father just is the same thing as god slash the divine nature god is a son Well, but he just is that. His being the Son just is the divine nature. He's the Spirit. Well, his being the Spirit is just the divine nature. How about God being triune? Well, God is whatever he has. There's no distinction between God's triunity and his nature and him. God just is the Trinity then. Does that make any sense? Well, I don't know. I have my doubts. But I think the key to the last steps in this semantic progression may be the idea that there's a difference in conception, but not in reality, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and between God and the Trinity. So that's the best I can do for now, John. I hope to have a better story to tell when I better get my head around the theology of that era.
2: Second question. The evidence seems quite strong that in both first and fourth centuries, Christian and Jewish theology was able to handle the idea of humans being gods in some sense. How is it, then, that the same guys who are pushing so hard for homoousios of Christ are also pushing for the deification of the saints? If Christ took on human usios, in the same way that humans take on divine usios, then does that mean that they also believed that humans were homoousios with the Father, albeit by a different track?
1: So, if they thought that humans could become, in some sense, divine, why didn't they say that people like you and me someday will be homoousios, same usia, same substance or essence? with the Father, just like Jesus, according to the Nicene Creed. Well, you say if Christ took on human nature in the same way that humans take on divine nature, well, you gotta stop right there. It's not clear at all in the fourth century in what sense Christ took on human nature. So they believe that there's eternally existing this Logos, which is divine because of the Father. In some mysterious manner, the Father caused the existence in a timeless way of the Logos. And so then presumably the Logos is also all-powerful and all-knowing. And then the doctrine was that the Logos became human. What does that mean? Does that just mean the Logos takes on a body? So the Logos takes the place of a human soul? Does that mean that there was a man named Jesus, and the Christ or the Logos took on, absorbed, combined with somehow this man. So now, then you would have two selves in Jesus. You'd have the man, Jesus, composed of body and soul, just like me or you. And then you'd also have the Logos. In the 4th century and going on into the 5th century, this was very much a matter of debate. And it was not clear quite what should be said about this. What happened in the year 451 was that an official formula was composed. Both sides were told to shut up and not debate about this anymore. And that's kind of where we stand. But that's another story. So go back to the 4th century instead of the 5th. They wouldn't agree that Christ took on human nature in the same way that humans take on divine nature. So Second Peter says that we can become partakers in the divine nature, talking about we who are saved. Look, this just means being made like God, I think, in a moral sense, and maybe also in the sense of being made immortal once we are raised from the dead. Yes, there is a long tradition of talking about salvation as deification. This is discussed in a most erudite manner by Dr. Carl Mosier in episodes 59 and 60 of the Trinity's podcast. I recommend those episodes to you. It didn't worry anybody about monotheism because it was obvious to all concerned that They were talking about a lesser sense of deity. To be made divine is just to be made like God to some extent. Well, if Adam and Eve were made in God's image, you could say that they were divine to some extent, and just that they resembled God in some way to some degree. Jesus says we're to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. So the divinization of Christians would be, again, being promoted to immortality and to a kind of moral completeness or perfection, as is enjoyed by the Father and the Son. Uh, Look, it just couldn't involve us being divine in the same sense that God is divine, because one of his attributes is auseity, that he exists and has all his perfections, not because of anything else. If we were to be promoted to any sense of godhood, well, that's because that God and Jesus have done this for us. There's another element of it also in the 4th century. They thought that Jesus shared, at least after the controversy that led up to the Creed of 325, they thought that Jesus shared the nature of the Father in a way that rules out Jesus being created. So if creation is being made from nothing, if being created is being created ex nihilo, they thought that being eternally made from the usia, from the nature of the Father, was contrary to being created. Now, earlier on, they were much more flexible in how they talked. Origen talks about Jesus as being a creature and being a creation, even though he thinks that the Father eternally generated the Son. In this later era, they use creation only for creation in the way that the cosmos was created, which is being made from nothing. And in their view, being generated rules out being made from nothing. Why does it? Well, I think they just stipulate it, really. They think it sounds bad to call Jesus a creature. It sounded to them like he was being put on a similar level to other creatures, and they thought that wasn't exalted enough, so they just decided they weren't going to call him created. And whatever eternal generation is supposed to mean, it's supposed to rule out creation for them. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast third you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? if so you can donate a dollar each month via paypal and of course any one-time gift is much appreciated fourth you can send us some brief to the point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode we would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Second group of questions are from a listener named Bert. And Bert asks, Why does evil exist? Perhaps the better question is, What is accomplished by allowing for evil to temporarily exist? Well, that's a whopper of a question. But in my view, what is of use to God isn't so much specific evils or specific amounts of evils, but the possibility of certain types of evils. The utility of that possibility is that that is logically required for humans to freely choose to cooperate with God. If God wants love that's freely given, if he wants a kind of love where we are genuinely able to give it or withhold it, then he has to give us an opportunity to withhold it. Now, not all withholding love is sin, but here's another thing it seems that God would value. It would be good character that's freely chosen, in a sense, that's developed over a course of a life by choosing to respond in certain ways to challenges and problems. If God wants good character that's not just built in, but character that's been freely developed over time, he's going to have to allow not just any withholding of love, but he's going to have to allow evil. What if God wants us to be free to not believe in God? He's going to have to hide then. He's going to have to make his existence, in some sense, not fully obvious. His existence and nature and his love have to be ignorable. Well, if that's going to be so, people are going to have to be able to look at the world and think that it's just random, that there's no divine providence. But that logically implies the possibility of a lot of horrible things. Another factor you have to consider is if God wants us to be able to have agency, if he wants us to be able to control our bodies and our surroundings, then he has to make miracles very rare. He can't constantly be changing up how nature works. So if you throw a rock off a cliff, the rock's going to fall. But what if you accidentally step off a cliff? If every time an innocent person stepped off a cliff, suddenly the law of gravity was revoked, so to speak, and that person just floated in midair and landed safely back on the ground, well, that would make it obvious that somebody was protecting us. Every time I went to insult you and kind words came out, it would be obvious that somebody was there, some unseen agent who didn't want insults to be said. If every time I went to punch you, my fist disappeared, we would know that there was a hidden agent behind the scenes who doesn't like people to get punched in the face. So if God wants us to have a wide scope of freedom and a lot of control over what kind of people we become and a lot of influence over what kind of people our friends and family members and colleagues become, if he's going to allow those things, he's going to allow there to be quite a lot of evil. Evil of many kinds and in many degrees, often with very tragic outcomes. But as you said in your question, this is all temporary. When God gets as many people as he wants, who have freely chosen to develop the kind of character that he's interested in, and who have freely chosen to give their love to him, to say yes to his invitation, he can get rid of evil just as easily as he allowed it in in the first place. So it is important, I think, to keep in mind that the age of evil is just an infinitesimally small portion of all the history of God's creation. It's not one billionth of the time, it's less than a billionth of a billionth of the time, because God's creation will go on infinitely long. And it'll turn out that the age of evil is just some billions of years. That sounds like a long time to us, but when viewed, say, 10 billion years from now or 100 billion years from now, it'll seem just like a flicker of darkness before the lights came on. Bert also asks, Was Jesus given one God quality before he came to the earth the first time? John 5.26 presents, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given the Son to have life in himself. And then Bert continues, Since Jesus was given the God quality of life, maybe this event can better explain who Jesus is.
0: Well, let's look at that passage in its context. Now because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began persecuting him. So he told them, My father is working until now, and too I am working. For this reason the Jewish leaders were trying even harder to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thus making himself equal with God. So Jesus answered them, I tell you the solemn truth. The Son can do nothing on His own initiative, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and shows Him everything He does, and will show Him greater deeds than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He wishes. Furthermore, the Father does not judge anyone but has assigned all judgment to the Son so that all people will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The one who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who hears my message and believes the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned, but has crossed over from death to life. I tell you the solemn truth. A time is coming and is now here, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, thus he granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has granted the Son authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come out, The ones who have done what is good to the resurrection resulting in life, and the ones who have done what is evil to the resurrection resulting in condemnation. I can do nothing on my own initiative, but as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me.
1: Now you call life a God quality. Well, yes, God is alive. But you and I are alive too. True, maybe God is essentially alive. He couldn't be dead. In fact, the Bible says that God is immortal, and that just means can't die or not subject to death. So God is essentially alive, and you and I are not essentially alive. I think you're thinking that this passage says something about the metaphysics of the sun, about what essential qualities the sun has. Of course, if the father has given the son to have life in his self, then the son wouldn't essentially be alive if he had that quality given to him. What's essential to you you have at all times at which you exist. But I don't think anything here is being said about the divine nature of the son at all. It's not just the feature of having life or being alive, that's in view. It's the feature of having life in oneself. What is it to have life in oneself? Well, I think it means that one is alive and able to give life to others. What kind of life? I assume that this is supposed to be eternal life, the life of the age to come. So yes, the Father has the eternal life. He's given eternal life to the Son. And because he's given the Son the authority to be the judge of the human race then now the Son is the one who dishes out life or not. The key, I think, comes in the middle of this passage, where Jesus says that whoever hears his word and believes in him has eternal life, and so does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. If you believe that Jesus has a divine nature, you can accept this passage. If you don't put any trust in this family of speculations about Jesus having two natures, you just think Jesus is a human, the Son of God, the Messiah, Yes, you can still agree with everything in this passage. I just don't think it has to do with any kind of doctrine of two natures in Jesus. The last group of questions is from a listener named Rick, and Rick asked me a whole bunch of things by email, which I can't get into all of them, but uh, here are a couple of the things that he raised. First, he asked me to consider this argument. Premise one, God is Father, Son, Spirit. Premise two, Jesus is fully God. Conclusion, therefore, Jesus is fully Father, Son, Spirit. Now, he suspects that this is an invalid argument. Yes, it might be valid or invalid. It depends on how we interpret it. So, if we interpret it as identity straight through, so in other words, God is identical to Father, Son, Spirit, and then Jesus is identical to God, and then, therefore, Jesus is identical to Father, Son, and Spirit. On the face of it, that looks like it's valid. God just is the three of them. Jesus is God, so Jesus must be the three of them. It looks like it would be formally valid, although the identity relation is, of necessity, one-one. It can't have more than one thing being identical to some one other thing. That's just nonsense. Identity is a one-one relation. Identity is a relation that everything has to itself and not to anything else. Now, if you thought that a thing could be identical to a plurality of things, then you might think that the argument is sound and valid. But if you think that identity is of necessity, a one-to-one relation, it looks like then the first premise is going to be false. That says that God is identical to Father, Son, Spirit. Now, what if you took it not as identity, but as predication? So when you say that something's God, you're just saying that it's divine. So premise one would be Father, Son, and Spirit are divine. And then Jesus is divine. Therefore, Jesus is Father, Son, Spirit. Now it looks like the argument's just invalid. The conclusion doesn't follow. So when it comes to those first two interpretations of this argument, I don't see that any can be a sound argument. Here's another interpretation. You might say, Hey, by the Father, Son, and Spirit, I just mean to refer to the Trinity, to the tri-personal God. So on this interpretation, the argument would be, God is the Trinity. Let's interpret that as God is identical, numerically identical to the Trinity. That's what Trinitarians think. Premise two, Jesus is fully God, meaning that Jesus is identical to God, numerically identical. This is what a lot of evangelicals think. And therefore, Jesus is fully Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, Jesus just is the Trinity. Jesus is numerically identical to the Trinity. So again, the argument is... God just is the Trinity, and then Jesus just is God. The conclusion is, Jesus just is the Trinity. Now, this argument is really interesting because it is clearly valid. It is such that if each premise were true, then the conclusion must be true. The argument has the right kind of structure, in other words. Now, is it a sound argument? Is it an argument which is not only valid, but which has true premises? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is that I don't think Jesus is identical to God. I think that the New Testament clearly asserts that the Father is identical to God, and the Father and Jesus aren't the same. So I think premise two is false. Also, based on my overall reading of Scripture, with all the help I can get, I don't think that the one true God is identical to the Trinity. I think the one true God is the Father. So I don't think premise one is true either. So I think it's a valid argument with two false premises. Here's the interesting thing, though. Let's suppose you're a Trinitarian. You say, okay, yes, God is the Trinity. I agree with premise one. And then premise two, Jesus is God. That is, is numerically identical to God. And the conclusion is, therefore, Jesus is the Trinity. So the argument is valid. If you don't want to accept a conclusion, you have to deny at least one premise. What this argument shows is that you can't be a Trinitarian and also believe in the Deity of Christ if the Deity of Christ means that Jesus just is God Himself, that is, that Jesus and God are numerically one. If God is a Trinity, well, look, everybody agrees that Jesus isn't the Trinity. If God is a Trinity, then God is tripersonal. You don't think that Jesus is tripersonal. You think that Jesus died for your sins. You don't think that the Trinity died for your sins. When did this happen? Okay, so Jesus and the Trinity are definitely two. They're definitely not identical. Everybody agrees on that, Trinitarian or Unitarian. So you have to deny the conclusion. Okay, but then you can't accept both premises. You either have to deny that Jesus is God, or you have to deny that God is the Trinity. Or you can deny both. So, Rick, I think it's a really interesting argument when interpreted that way. It shows that a person has to choose between being a Trinitarian and accepting the doctrine of the quote deity of Christ end quote in the way that a lot of people understand that nowadays and note that nothing about what I just said depends on my own convictions the argument is what it is it is valid and so because of that it shows that if you want to deny the conclusion you can't accept both premises it's not a problem for me but it's a problem for some Trinitarians. Now, as I mentioned, Rick says a bunch of other things. I can't get into them all, but here's another thing. He's in a speculative vein. He says, quote, "...it seems to me that immutable omniscience is God's person, that he is a set of thoughts or propositions, perhaps not even thinking or living temporal processes, but thought and life." We may want him to be living and thinking, recalling, speculating options, and solving puzzles, like us, because we just want him to be like us, dynamis, not stasis. We don't want to end up like him if he's mentally still. We prefer to race around. Rest is bad. But the Bible speaks of him as the one who is and the one who was and the coming one and later the living one. End quote. Well, it doesn't seem right to me to say that omniscience is God's person. Omniscience is a quality that only a person or a self can have. I think it's a category mistake to say that God is a set of thoughts. No, he's the thinker who has all the divine thoughts. I think it's another and different issue whether you think that God is timeless or omnitemporal. The classical view that you see in the ancient world and in medieval theology is that God is, strictly speaking, timeless that there is no before and after in God, that he lives his life all at once. Right, but then he would just be timelessly living and thinking, uh, he'd be having all his thoughts at once, there wouldn't be any change going on there. Myself, I'm inclined to think that this is not consistent with the picture of God that we see in the Bible, specifically where God is responding, where God is waiting to see how things turn out in some cases where God is interacting with us, seemingly doing different things at different times. But that's arguable. But still I would say that you shouldn't say that God is a set of thoughts. A set of thoughts can't be a God. A God is a being. A set of thoughts is not a being, much less a perfect being. So that's all I know I've gone on a bit long. Thank you very much to John, Bert, and Rick for their questions. Thank you, gentlemen. Speaking of gentlemen why is it all gentlemen? Where are the ladies? We need to hear some questions from some ladies next time. This week's Thinking Music has been Blackout and Blue by Little Glass Men. And our excerpt from John chapter 5 was read by Michael Lee for his Bible podcast. You can hear the entire track Blackout and Blue And you can find links to the Bible podcast and to the John 5 episode at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Thanks
0: for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.